Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Challenging. Thought-provoking. Insightful. This is God in Country. The collision of faith and politics. Hosted by nationally known speaker, Reverend Dr. Sean Michael Greener. Not your typical Rev. Dr. Sean is a proud military veteran, former law enforcement officer, and founder of the internationally regarded executive protection team. Through counseling, elite life coaching, and national speaking, this ninja pastor tells it like it is. This series is biblically and politically engaged with the pedal to the metal. With today's edition of God in Country, here is host and author of the acclaimed yet controversial book, Excellence Killed the Church, How Mediocrity is Destroying America, Dr. Sean Michael Greener. Well, hello, folks. It's so good to talk to you. I'm excited about it. I'm always excited about every show. Not true. Totally not excited about every show. That's a flat-out lie. I apologize for lying, but it's true. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, yeah, some shows I'm not as excited about. Some shows just, I just, have, I'm not as eager. You know what I mean? Hey, look, you know, that's okay. You know, you, you do a thing. It's two hours. I don't know if you guys know, but I don't have a producer. I don't have any of that technical stuff. I do it all myself. We fund it ourselves and we do it ourselves. And hopefully you guys like it. Uh, it it's one of those cool things, but, but it's not always the most fun. Sitting anywhere for two hours for me is brutal post-crash. So not that I'm going to hear a bunch of wah, 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 you know. Um, but tell you the truth, it's... Uh, Sometimes it's a little difficult post-crash. Pre-crash, I could sit, stand, hike, hours and hours all day long, run, swim, whatever. Just It's different now, just a different thing. So, But this show, I am super excited about, super excited about. Um, now, <clears throat> let me tell you the evolution of today's show before our first guest comes on, uh, which, by the way, our guests are ridiculous. Today, they're just ridiculous. Um, our, our first guest will be a uh, university of Chicago professor, Rachel Fulton Brown. Now I call her the teacher of truth. She'd probably be, she would probably prefer. I don't do that. I'm, I'm guessing, uh, I don't know her other than, uh, someone sent me one of her blog posts and I thought, Oh, this is a little, now this is a little different, isn't it? So I said, I said, uh, you know this is different. I, I don't really know what to make of this. So I felt very strongly that, uh, you know, I want to learn more about this woman. And, uh, she really is uh, pretty amazing as best I can find. And her blog, this is her blog. All, by the way, all this stuff. Hello, by the way, to all of our veterans around the world listening, uh, to the seals listening to, uh, 
all all the other folks listening all around the world, all the different services, and also a special, special hello to the Gold Star families, one of whom uh, is not listening today, but uh, we're sending our prayers to uh, Corinne Owens, uh, her husband, Ryan, uh, was killed uh, just a matter of weeks ago in uh, an assault in Yemen, and he's, he's a, a Devgur guy, and, uh, and he uh, gave his life uh, for his team and for his country, and, and for that, there's no comparison there's no there are no words to offer there are no words to offer quite frankly um but uh she was honored by our president president donald trump um you know what a stem winder of a speech man i loved it i hooted i hollered i was gonna live tweet it and i just couldn't do it i just couldn't do it man i was so plugged in and uh but so honored uh, by that well she wrote this post um and she being professor uh, you know, her, her full name is Rachel Fulton Brown, but I'll just call her. I don't know. I'll ask her what she wants me to call her. I mean, but whatever. She's an author. She's, I've read some of her stuff. She studies the hard stuff, man. I mean, hard stuff. And uh, I guess when I, and I'm an avid reader, right? You guys know that. Avid reader. So, you know, in the process of being an avid reader, I read some kind of some wild stuff. Uh, I read all kinds of different things. I mean, I'm not afraid to read stuff. You know, I'm not afraid of having my mind changed, you know, any of that stuff. But uh, by the way, welcome, uh, folks in chat. Good to have you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, it's, it's always an honor to have people click in with us. It's, it's always an honor. All over the world, we have people... Um, I have a growing, I don't know why this is, but I have a growing, uh, base in Russia. And we just looked at the demographics, Russia, huge UK, uh, overall Europe, very, very big, very, very big. What am I talking? But a huge, a huge number. And I, I'm drinking tea, tea I made myself. No, thanks to taco, Tony, no tacos and no tea. And my tea is not as good as his. His tea is pretty good. Uh, but suffice it to say, well, anyway, we'll cut the chase. I read this thing. Professor Brown wrote, uh, again, associate professor of history at the Uni uh, University of Chicago. Um, I I'm fascinated with uh, Milo. Everybody calls him Milo, but it's Milo uh, Yiannopoulos, uh, you know, and he's Catholic conservative and trying to do good after spending his 20s living riotously and hurting more people than he should or meant to. And, um, I, I think it's interesting her take on this, the professor's take on this. She, this blog is called fencing bear at prayer musings of an entish Presbyterian medievalist on life, liberty, and love in the postmodern West. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, her profile picture makes me a little nervous. She's, she seems a little ornery, you know, just a little bit ornery. Looking kind of sideways, like, eh, go ahead and mess with me. Well, she writes this article, and she's, you know, obviously uh, adept in, in academia, but uh, this is not your average boring professor. Uh, in fact, I would love to take one of her courses to be fun. I would say co-teach, but I don't know that much about medieval. Medieval? I know a lot about medieval weapons, but I don't know a lot about medieval writing and literature. 
but she talks a lot about and studies. Uh, welcome to uh, the brooms here. Uh, say rock on mama bear in, um, in the chat. So you're welcome to join that. But um, I know a little about a little bit about Milo. And so when I read this, everybody else is running from Milo. Like he's, you know, their hair's on fire. His hair's on fire. You know, when your brand falls, I've talked about this as different people I've protected uh, people's, you know, usually the people that, that I protected were in serious risk, quite frankly, very serious. Our, our tagline at executive protection team.com is when it's your life, we're your team. So I've protected people whose brand really collapsed. I mean, imploded. And I think having watched it, uh, having watched it happen, it's just extraordinary to watch happen. I mean, it, it, the implosion just, well, I won't say implosion because most of the people I've protected have really kept it together, but all the hangers on, you know, all the people that while your, your star is rising, you know, you're, you're, you're on a, uh, a meteor ride, you know, well, the meteors come down, you know, and despite your best efforts, you know, the meteor starts to come down and then what happens? Well, <laughs> stuff falls apart and the clingers and the holders on the hangers on. They're all about being with you, all about being, you know, we got your back, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then what happens? You know, your your uh, brand collapses or you, you have a moral collapse or you have a, you say the wrong word. Sometimes it's not even if you say the wrong word, quite frankly. You know, how many times has it happened where somebody has said, you know, something that is is not offensive? It's not offensive. Look, I'm going to say this to you. Uh, by the way, the speech the president gave again, amazing, really good speech. The president gave a speech last night I, I was so proud of. Um, it, you know, and I give speeches all across the country. And, and you know, when someone describes my speech as a stem winder, that's, that's, that's a huge compliment. You know, it's a fascinating, interesting, dynamic speech. And so if you're a public speaker, that's what, that's what you want to be described as. So I'm always honored by that. By the way, May, uh, March 7th and 9th, I'm speaking in the state of Delaware, two different places for a great group, uh, two different groups, but same overall group, the 912 Delaware Patriots. And I'm going to be speaking in Dover, Delaware uh, at the Grotto's uh, conference. It's a, there's a Grotto's there, and then they have this huge, beautiful conference room. And then I'll be speaking at the intersection of Route 5 and Route 24 uh, down in Millsboro, Delaware. Uh, and, and so they, they intersect. It's right there. It's a really cool, cool place to be. They have a huge room uh, in the back. It's very, very nice. So we'd love for you to come. And uh, it's just cool. It's it's just really, really cool. Well, anyway. Well, let me let me say this. Let me skip to this, because obviously, uh, once we get our guests on today, today's show really seriously is, is going to be a blast. Um, I, sh I should probably tell you, both of our guests, Rachel Fulton Brown, she's an associate professor of history at the University of Chicago. She's been a student of the medieval devotion to the Virgin Mary for over 30 years. Apparently that fascinated her. She wanted to jump on that. She is the author of From Judgment to Passion, Devotion to Christ and the Virgin Mary, 800 to 1200, Columbia University Press, 2002. She has a second book forthcoming, forthcoming this year entitled Mary and the Art of Prayer, The Hours of the Virgin in medieval Christian life and thought, 
also with Columbia University Press. Uh, but that's not the only reason she's here with us, the Collision of Faith and Politics radio show. Uh, Professor Brown is a fencer. I don't mean she puts up fence. Well, what kind of fence do you want today? We'll put you in a, a split oak or we'll, we'll put you in a, well, we don't like to do chain link, but we'll put you in a post and rail or, you know, we'll put you in a privacy fence, whatever you want, whatever you want, we'll do it. No, it's not that kind of fencing. It's the sword kind of fencing. Uh, she represented the United States as a member of the women's foil team at the World Veteran Fencing Championships this past October in Germany. So she's an international fencer, and and but she has this persona, fencing bear at prayer. This is what this what this um, this blog is all about. All the links are on the ninjapastor.com, drshongreader.com. If you look at the post from today, everything's there. So if you want to buy her book or you want to subscribe, which I encourage you to do, click on that. All my website, everything is there. It's super easy. I couldn't have made it easier. I don't think unless I'd have come to your home, written it down. Some people like a lot of paper and pen if i'd have driven to your house and written it down and like on a, a post-it note put it on your fridge or oh no on your computer th that would have probably been but i don't do that i mean i would do it depends you know depends on what kind of food you serve me and you know whatever so you guys know milo yiannopoulos uh, had his dangerous faggot tour this i'm not saying this is what the tour was called dangerous faggot tour he's traveling all over american college campuses so uh, this fencer, uh, she's also studying some other type of sword, uh, mother and wife. She's going to be here in just a few minutes to talk to us about the relationship between fencing prayer and the place of religion and academia, as well as what she sees, uh, as the importance of Milo's tour, Milo's tour. So you don't want to miss that. That's just in a couple of minutes. And then after that, we have a guy who honestly, quite frankly, whew, what a life, what a life. One of the youngest ever, by the way. Uh, one of the youngest ever to uh, be on, you know it, regular civilians know it as SEAL Team 6, but it's really uh, Naval Special Warfare Development Group or DevGrew. Uh, but it, there's people still say SEAL Team 6 just because, you know, habits, old habits. Uh, but the fact of the matter is uh, this guy, you know, first of all, he looks like he's like 18 years old, 17, 18 years old. So he, he's had a, a military career spanning. He was a SEAL for 17 years. Military career spanning um, all that time. Uh, but he was very young. He was 17. I also was 17 when I went to the Navy. And then after two years, he became he completed all the SEAL training in two years and uh, went into the, the teams. So he's extraordinary guy. But he's also a world record holder. In what, you might say, he's a world record holder in wingsuit, flying this wingsuit. So he jumps out of a plane uh, at 37,000 feet. Let me tell you, it's very cold at 37,000 feet. A very high rate of speed. And uh, he, But why is he doing this? He's going to break the world record for flying a wingsuit. You see those squirrel suits? Yeah, you see those videos. The guys are flying. And uh, one of the, the biggest videos, guy just got killed, unfortunately. So it's very, very dangerous, obviously. Uh, you can, it's a very dangerous activity that you can do as safely as possible, as he would say. Uh, but he's completed multiple combat tours, hundreds of combat operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, and while the majority of, of Andy Stump's, uh, you can follow him at Instagram, Andy Stump 212, uh, he, as a United States Navy SEAL, his record is where he went and what he did is classified. But his DD-214 includes five bronze star medals, four with valor. A purple heart. He was shot in his hip. 
Joint Service Commendation Medal, Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal with Valor, Army Commendation Medal, and two Combat Action Ribbons and a Presidential Unit Citation. So this is a show you don't want to miss. Now, our first guest uh, seems to me to be a person that I think anybody would want to be friends with. Um, because the way she thinks and the way she writes now, if she writes the way she thinks, which I think most people for the most part do, um, by the way, if you're gonna, if you're gonna write stuff, if I'm coming to your house to write stuff down, if you could provide the paper, I like gel pens. I like pens that write really like, I don't like Sharpies cause they bleed through. So I'm going to write this thing out for you on your computer, by the way, just, just have a gel pen. And if you can find the gel pens with green, dark green ink, oh. I would love that so much. My name is my name is Greener, right? So you get that now. Uh, but for real, and just have a little thing, a little sticky notebook or a little whatever. I'm, I'm just trying to help here. So Professor Rachel Fulton Brown, um, you know, you think of the University of Chicago, you don't think of a person that thinks like she does. But maybe there's more of them than, than we know of. But, you know, I don't know. So let's get to know her a little bit. Be fun, I think. Why not? Why not? Let's bring her on. Let's see what happens here. Professor Rachel Fulton Brown, how are you? I'm Sean Greener. Hi, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I think I'm unusual, even at Chicago. <laughs> I'm thinking so. I've read a lot of your stuff by now, and uh, I have to tell you, uh, I'm going to subscribe to your blog. Thank subscribe you. to your blog. It, there's not a fee. It's just free. So tell yes, our folks. It's my, it's my public service education. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> Musings of an Entish Presbyterian medievalist. Can you please tell our audience what an Entish Presbyterian medievalist is? What is Entish Presbyterian? Okay. Is that some special thing? Well, Ent, Ent is, is in Treebeard um, in The Lord of the Rings. He's the, the great tree giant. And right. when um, the hobbits meet him in the forest, they, they're you know involved in the great battle between good and evil. And they ask him whose side he's on because the hobbits are used to, you know, they're up against Sauron and there's Sauron and Treebeard. So, so I'm not really sure I'm on anybody's side because I'm not sure anybody's really on mine. Um, hmm. And it, it's, meant to, it's meant to express my feeling of it's, it's very hard. I mean, it's very hard politically in our conversation. But it's also quite hard culturally to figure out, well, you know, what are the sides anymore? So I, I, I think a lot through Tolkien's imagery, and that's what the Entish meant. Um, Presbyterian I got that, that I okay. So um, I was baptized as a Presbyterian, um, and um, it's it's only recently in the last few years that I've I've really come to appreciate what that meant for me intellectually growing up in a tradition that was very focused on the scripture and the interpretation of scripture, um, but also in a particular sort of style of thinking that I I I, I questioning. My my dad always used to love to say, you know, Presbyterians we. We're, we're so intellectual because we question everything. So I think, I think that that's, I'm not really on anybody's side because I can't find anybody completely on mine, although I've started to believe Milo is, so we'll go there. Um, and, and the Presbyterianness is just, I'm, I'm going to be wrestling with the text, the questions, the, the problems constantly. Um, and then um, as a medievalist, I, I am um, trained as a scholar in, in medieval studies, but since I've spent that, I've spent 30 years thinking through um, the medieval tradition, I realized it's, it's really shaped the way I also come to looking at our, our present. And I wanted to signal that to my readers saying, I'm, I'm not, the blog is not written entirely in my scholarly voice, but it's coming from my perspective as 
someone who who really looks at the world through this this older tradition. Hmm. What is the older tradition? What is that? I mean, well, for our um, audience, what are they? What are they? You know. By the way, I love this well, bear. This bear <laughs> deal is just—it's sucking me in. So this bear she, gets to go likes, everywhere. She does. She definitely does. Um, I've had her for about ten years as the toy, um, and you can see from the opening photo on the blog, she's she's actually there in New Mexico because that's where my family's from. Um, and she's standing, or I'm holding her, so she's standing on the wall of one of the oldest pueblos, uh, one of the ruins of the pueblos in, in New Mexico. And, and I like that picture on the blog because she's, she's looking out over the trees and the, the, the sky and into the heavens. And I, that, that really was the, the kind of sense that I wanted to capture with the blog of we're, we're crossing boundaries here. I mean, the Intish thing works there, too. She's standing on a wall, but she's not on either side of it. And she's trying to figure out how to make bridges across those boundaries. Um, what I mean when I, I say I think like a medievalist, I, I, I think this does make me unusual even among medievalists. But because the thing that I've worked on most in my scholarship is the tradition of commentary on the scriptures, which is, is very bound up in a particular way of thinking uh, through images. So um, you, you, the, the scriptures are all filled with stories and, and, and metaphors and um, links between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in, in the medieval tradition, you're, you're constantly sort of looking for, the, they say, the spiritual meaning, the, the, the spirit in the letter of the text. But there's also a, a sort of habit that you get of thinking, um, the fancy scholarly word for it is typologically. You're looking for ways in which one story has analogies in another story, and it's those patterns that really create meaning in our experience. That's intense. That's very intense. <laughs> when did this start? Because well, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm thinking. Obviously, I've spoken all over the country, and, and that's kind of what I do, and we speak to the nations as, as, we, um, as we do what we do on the radio. And right. I, I find that most... Now, there is, a, there is a good friend of the show that I want to connect you with. Uh, I will send you a message to him, um, Dr. Stephen Turley. Uh, he does okay. Turley Talks, and he teaches in a, a similar form that you do in that he's the classic, the classical education. He teaches college and teaches this really unique group of super intelligent kids uh, in a very classical way, you know, and, and, uh, it's very unique. I think you and he would have a great conversation and I'm going to send him Thank a link you. to your blog and all this stuff. And you're welcome. Um, but one of the things that he and I have talked about quite a bit and, and, uh, I, I actually have friends who, uh, I've known a very long time who were very, and, and as academics and scholars, you know, people who read all the time and study and think on the deeper things, uh, Usually academics, and this is coming from um, John and Lisa Broom in chat. By the way, chat is open. I forgot to tell everybody. I always forget that. Uh, um, actually, and, and this... they're my friends, too. I know them. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> As that luck would have world? it. I bet he's listening. It is right a tiny now. world. Hi, John. <laughs> yeah. So, so most academics are rather left or progressive in their views. Were you, and what was your pivot point? When did you start to reconsider that? Now, I want to, before I let you answer, because I know it's going to be an excellent answer, I'm looking at this bear, and and, and you're right. You're, you're there. You're creating this mental picture of, well, here's this bear with the foil in her hand, and she's at this crossroads. By the way, I love New Mexico. Most people don't realize how beautiful New Mexico oh, New is. New Mexico is 
the land of enchantment. Oh, I almost bought 40 acres there years ago. Uh, sometimes I wish that I did. But uh, but I have to tell you, it, it is it is really a tremendous thing. Which way am I going to go with my thought? So that question uh, by John Broom is is quite a good question. They they are rather left or progressive, even in, and I would even say this is true, uh, in seminary. Now, my seminary was was pretty conservative, but many seminaries now, and I talk about this in my book, many seminaries now are left or progressive, just like in John's question. So where were you at some point as an academic? Were you more to the left or progressive? Uh, and then what happened? What was the pivot point? Because for my friend, well, the no, pivot point for no, them is they had, had a baby. No, so I were your parents conservative? I, I, there, um, well, so I, I really, I've, you know, I've, I've blogged a lot about my father in, in different contexts. There's a blog a piece on him about chivalry in my chivalry series from last winter. Um, no, I was never, what I wasn't was politically aware, right? And, and I think there is, there is a pivot point on that. But I, I've recognized in retrospect, sort of coming into the more political conversation about this, culturally, I've always been conservative. And um, I think some of it is you find out that you have been, I mean, to me, what to me means conservative means, and I've been sort of struggling, the intish part of me is struggling about what do I mean by that, that term? And again, going back to what my dad always used to say about the Presbyterians, I've, I've since learned that, that what I really am is, is closest to what, what you'd call a common sense philosopher, um, which is where Adam Smith is, 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 you know, comes in. Uh, we usually think of Smith as, as the author of The Wealth of Nations, but he's also the author of Theory of Moral Sentiments. And um, you start realizing that, that culture, Smith has a wonderful discussion in the theory about um, how culture builds up from all of our, our daily interactions and that it, everything is about how we are socially with each other. And, and of course, Smith being both thinking in, in abstract terms about how we interact with strangers through the market was also a very deep thinker about how we interact with each other and create the particular social social world that we live in. Um, that's the Presbyterian tradition because that's the, the tradition that, for example, um, John Witherspoon taught at Princeton and that became the real 19th century American tradition because all those, you say you're trained at seminary, right? All those, all those preachers go out from the Presbyterian school in, at, at Princeton or College of New Jersey, as it was, and, and, and carry this sort of sense of responsibility to each other, of, of, of stand, you know, standing well in, in, in to your word and, and being honorable. There's also a kind of enthusiasm to the Presbyterian tradition and such and so forth. It's, but I say it's only recently that I realized that's where I, you know, that's where I find my ground. And so finding out that people don't agree with me on that has been more shocking <laughs> than... Mm -hmm. The sort of like where how did how did this not become true in in our national culture? Because I think the part of the country I grew up in, the sort of greater Appalachia, Kentucky through Texas to New Mexico, this is just the way you are, right? You you have you have certain ideas about who you who your your responsibility if you have gifts, right? If I'm very, very educated, I have a responsibility to take care of people, which is you say my blog is free, of course it's free that's my responsibility to, to teach, right? And if I have this learning and, uh, you know, spent years amassing it and I need to find some way to communicate it, that's my responsibility. It's not my privilege in the sense of I get to be high status at the University of Chicago. It's my responsibility as a person who's been given these, these talents. Um, to find out that that has a particular political valence has been very interesting for me, right? To, to find out that 
somehow that that marks me as something other than simply, you know, an American Presbyterian um, who thinks of herself as, as as having this this role in her society has, has been quite quite stunning. Um, I'm not sure I answered your question because there was no pivot, right? It's more a gradual realization. And that I started reading, so th- th- my, my work in medieval studies has always been quite interested in, I, th- I think this is the other aspect of my conservatism, I'd say, it's the celebration of beauty, right? So there's, mm-hmm. there's on the one hand a sense of responsibility, but there's also the, 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 the real sense of these are treasures to unpack and celebrate and rejoice in and understand rather than deconstruct and take apart. And, and of course, all, all through graduate school, I just kind of heard on the sidelines, I was in the graduate school in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, people worrying about identity and, and, and you know, sort of reading through the multiple layers of a text to find the kinds of things that people are more likely to be trained in now to see. And what I heard when I was a medievalist back in the day was, oh, you're looking for different layers of meaning, which is what we do in medieval textual studies anyway, because that's the way medieval commentators read scripture. They read across multiple layers for a spiritual understanding that's both moral and um, uh, sort of end times, anagogical, lifting you up in contemplation and um, showing the mystery of the church, right? So, I was I, I I was already kind of you know in the in the mode of reading multiply and so that wasn't a seduction and then of course some some years later I found out well the reason that people were talking in quite those terms was because Roland Barthes had read Henri uh, de Lubac's medieval exegesis and he got it from there and so in fact it was already a medieval tradition but I was kind of behind it right so I'd say I'm a, I was inoculated against the liberal um, mode because I was already deep in its roots and. I think in a better place. Hmm. Well, that's a great answer. Did, did that make uh, any sense at all? <laughs> it did. Yeah. Yeah. It did. It, it was. In, that was. Yeah, I'm sure you can. You grasp my soul and topple my enemies with it. And what is our soul? A splendid weapon it may be, long, sharp, oiled, and coruscating with the light of wisdom as it is brandished. But what is this soul of ours worth? What is it capable of? Unless God holds it and fights with it, any sword, however beautifully made, lies idle if there is no warrior to take it up. So God does whatever he wishes with our souls since it is in our hand. It is his to use as he will. And that's an exposition of Psalm 34 and 35, uh, Maria Bolding. I'm not familiar with her work, but I can say this very beautifully put. That's her translation translation of Augustine. Well, I, I love it, and I'll tell you why. Because, um, you know, obviously I'm a, a former military guy. Our next guest is a, you know, DevGrew Navy SEAL, 17-year uh, veteran of the SEALs and teams. And so, you know, a warrior mentality, a warfighter mentality, uh, a sheepdog mentality, I understand that. <laughs> I understand I that. it, and it's interesting. <laughs> Well, I was given the name uh, the Ninja Pastor in a very unique way, and the reason why is because I have a little bit of a unique background in that in that world of of protecting lives and and all of that, uh, and and then now as a pastor and as you know, a, a, I guess a a journeyman theologian, um, I really. You know, it's a weird juxtaposition. You don't normally see those. Uh, There was a guy by the name of Mark Allen Lee, also a Navy SEAL, uh, SEAL Team 3 guy. Um, And he was the first United States Navy SEAL 
to die in Iraq, in combat in Iraq. Um, and his mother and I are very good friends, and, and we do some work together. And he was in seminary. He was, this was his thing. And so he, it, it was an interesting juxtaposition. I mean, it was certainly uh, for many, especially on the left, it, it was something odd to hear this, this very brilliant guy who was going to go to seminary muse on about, uh, you know, uh, the higher things, the deeper, more beautiful thoughts. And yet he was, he was an absolute top-notch Navy SEAL, absolutely a top-notch SEAL. And well, none of that surprises me, as you can imagine. So. Well, and you know what's funny is uh, a common misconception about uh, warfighters is that uh, warfighters are stupid, and, and that somehow or another. But if you, Andy, now Andy, uh, and I hope you get a chance to listen to him. I know you're a very busy person, but I hope you get a chance to listen because Andy uh, is, you know, he, he went into the Navy at 17 years old, same as me, uh, and by 19 he was in on the teams, and so. Very brilliant guy, you know, really, really smart guy. And, you know, I don't know where he is spiritually. I don't know what his what his thoughts are on faith. You know, it's that's obviously a, a very deep thought, a very deep thing. And I would I would unpack that with him privately before I would publicly. But the fact of the well, matter I, is, is you a, want me to unpack yes. what you just read for everyone? Okay, go, so, go ahead. Um, what, what Sean just read is the the sort of inspiring um, epigraph for my blog um, and that has been there on the blog the entire time I've been working on it for eight years or so and it, it's 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 in the category of, of be careful what you wish for <laughs> um, because it's, it's very much in a sense of prayer it was the prayer that I started the blog with which was Lord I'm yours train me so that I know how you can use me right and um, I, I, I've been I've spent the last week fighting for Milo in the sense that this was it, right? This was one of the things that I was really training for. Um, but uh, that you asked me in the, the invitation is to say, well, why do I see something in prayer as something entwined? And it's very much for the reasons that you're suggesting here. Of course, monks thought of themselves as warriors, um, that, that Benedict in his rule specifically says that he's setting up the, the monastery as a school, which is a, is a kind of military term. It's a scola. It's the, the training place. Um, and it's a school for training the soul, um, he says in the prologue that, that they're to put on the strong, bright weapons of obedience, um, so, to, so to do battle under the Lord Christ, the true king. Um, so, you know, so what is it? These monks, right, they're, they're, they're not in the world. They're in the, in the cloister. How is that a training, a military training? And what, the, what they're thinking of is, well, this is, this is the, you go into the monastery, you go into the monastery as if into the, a desert, because the, you go into the desert to get, go where the demons are. And I'm sure you, you remember the pictures of St. Anthony when he's being attacked by all the demons. Mm -hmm. And you want the demons to attack you, right? <laughs> it's like you're going, you're going out there seeking opponents to train with and, and, and to become stronger with because, of course, the greatest battle ever, and this is why it goes back to, I think, what you're saying about your friends, it, ma it makes sense, right? The greatest battle is always not with your external enemy but with yourself and your, and your mm -hmm. soul and your ability to... Be ready for the be ready for everything. Be ready for the battle that, that that needs to come. Now, of course, monks are training for the spiritual battle, and knights in the medieval tradition are training for the the, the physical battle. But the and as a fencer, as a sport, you know, it's a, it's a sport for me, not a not a martial art in the sense of I don't really expect to have to fight with with. The, but but the training of the practice of being there on the strip. The strip is like the desert, right? You've gone there and you are going to confront your demons. 
on that strip. And the, the longer story of the Fencing Bear blog is I've gone through all of them. <laughs> and I can mm-hmm. name those demons for you, and I bet you can too. They're pride, envy, anger, mm-hmm. gluttony, lust, sloth, greed. They're the seven deadly sins. And um, that, you know, the, I think I, in some of the things that I've been sort of writing about, about what I think is going on in our campus culture, one of the most serious things we have is a, is, is, is a I don't know how many generations we're dealing with here, but people who are not trained to deal with all those emotions, people are not mm-hmm. trained to deal with all of those, those anxieties that are going to come get you. Right. And as, as a fencer, it's, it's nice because it's very artificial, right? You go up, you have to know how to respond to your opponent, but mainly what you have to do is be able to stay in it and not be listening to the chatter in your head that's either saying you suck or you should be right. You get on strip mm-hmm. and you think I should be able to win this. Well, that's pride t- tempting you, right? Or, you know, she won mm-hmm. and I wish she had and I'm as good as she is. Well, that's envy, right? And so the, the, the fencing bear in prayer is really you have to be able to train all of those emotions to the point where you can stay still in order to hear what God actually wants you to do and, and to be ready mm-hmm. to be used by God to do his will under, as it was for me, I can promise you this last week, pretty stressful. Um, hmm. ex- extremely stressful social circumstances, spiritual circumstances, and and be Christian throughout. Hmm. I can go on. What is I bet you have what, what is being Christian? <laughs> like you, you have some, you have some major struggles well, and stuff. But what is what is being Christian? This is something I've 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 been so. Also, you have to be aware. You have to be ready for the lessons as they come, right? And one of the great lessons I learned in the last week is how many new friends I have. <laughs> Yeah. I feel like the church has exploded. I have so many new people that are in touch with me, including you. Um, but the thing I learned this week that I, I think was extremely important for me, for I, although I'd been thinking it and hadn't really clarified it, is what it really means to turn the other cheek. Um, and, and I think it, Christians, we often are, you know, it's like, oh, it means letting yourself get hit. It doesn't mean letting yourself get hit. You're allowed to, to just parry, right? What I think is, is, is more important is that whatever attack comes, you're able to turn it to love in some way, right? You're able to, because people are people have been coming at me all week with questions about Milo and and questions about my sort of scholarly position on a, a variety of things that I wrote about in the the article on sightings that your readers, your listeners may know about. Um, and they'll be angry at me, right? That they're they're angry because they think I've said things that I haven't, or they think they they they're misplacing things that I I may have said, and I have to be able. I, I kept praying all last week, Lord, remind me I'm a Christian. <laughs> yeah. Forgive those who are angry. Help me turn this into a kind of conversation that can actually be helpful for both of us. And I, you know, I, I, I chalk up victories for myself. Uh, one of our graduate students wrote an editorial to our student, our campus newspaper this past Friday. And, and he was, dear Professor Brown, with love, you're wrong. And came at me fairly strongly, but I, I wrote a, a I guess I, I did it right, right? And I'm happy about that. I wrote a, a fairly calm response in the online comments and he emailed me. And over the course of, it took only three emails. We suddenly realized we weren't that far off from both being the person that stirred up conversation and controversy. And in fact, m- most of what he was upset about with me, I hadn't really said, he misunderstood. And that I actually appreciated his being willing to be on the strip there with me because as a fencer, what you learn is you can't fence by yourself. So you learn from the person that comes to you and offers you the bout, right? And as, as a Christian, you, you come into it and you say, I'm going to learn from this. 
I'm not going to be angry at this person because they're fighting me. They're fighting me to help me in some way. I need this is this this fight has been brought to me because I need to learn something. And I'd, I'd say as a, as a Christian fencer, that's the the strongest lesson that I've had this week. That turning the other cheek means turning it so that you can transform the conversation into something that is actually healing for both of you, which can be difficult. Trust me, it's it's very hard not to respond out of anger. Absolutely. Do you feel like taking a call just for fun? Sure. All right, here we go. All right, you've got the Ninja Pastor Collision of Faith and Politics with Professor Rachel Fulton Brown. If you wouldn't mind, state your name and where you're calling from. Hi, this is uh, Professor John Broom from Neosho, Missouri. <laughs> Hi, John. <laughs> hey, Rachel. You did it. <laughs> yeah, I did. Hey, um, I probably know the answer to this because I've read the blog um, and uh, followed this for a while now, but maybe the listeners would kind of want to know how um, a medieval historian who is very Christian, um, not just in what she studies, but also in her own life, um, came to this relationship with Milo who oftentimes comes across, well, I mean, he's got the dangerous faggot to her. I mean, right. he makes no bones about it. And and the the British speak our langu- language a little differently than we do. And I like to put it that they use the F-bomb like a comma and they use the see you next Tuesday word the way we use the word jerk. Could you explain to the listeners how how that came about, how how this wonderful middle-aged medieval historian came to appreciate Milo. I'd love to. Um, so th- there, there are two elements to it. One, the, the concern with freedom of speech on campuses, which the University of Chicago was very committed to. And um, our deans, as many people have heard, sent out a letter in September saying, we, on, we at the University of Chicago don't use safe spaces and trigger warnings as a way of protecting our students from conversation, right? Which is different from saying we're not a safe space psychologically for other reasons, but we want you to come here and have the difficult arguments. Well, I was aware of Milo's talks, but I haven't really watched any of the videos. I watched the videos and out of the desire, because I'm a medievalist, right? I I don't think someone should be condemned for heresy without a proper inquisition. So (laughs) I was going to go listen to him. I, and give you know ask watch him and see the questions and of course what what I saw and these were the videos from the spring tour, which were much less theatrical than the ones in the autumn tour. But what I saw was a person making jokes and you know jokes often use coarse language so that's fine. Two student you know undergraduates who sometimes use coarse language themselves not when grownups are around, um, and but underneath someone who cared deeply about incredibly Christian and conservative values. I mean, the, the kinds of things he would say to them when they'd ask, how do I survive as a liberal student, or as a conservative student on this liberal campus? And he would say, keep your head down, get out, get a good job, get married, have kids, and have a good life, and, 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 and you know, live well, right? That, that what people who don't watch Milo always hear, because that's the thing that gets more traffic in the in the in the in the larger media is is the 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 coarse jokes what he says and what he really cares about are um 
things that most conservatives socially conservative um, um, Christians typically do. He cares about marriage. Um, he got into lots of trouble with um, um, Mrs. Clinton because she used one of his uh, headlines as a joke, right? Birth control makes women unattractive and crazy. Uh, the point of that was fairly conservative Catholic teaching on birth control. So what I saw when I was watching him was someone who was using jokes to break through a lot of the difficult taboo topics and to, in fact, um, to teach fairly um, compassionate um, lessons. And I'm, my sense is that the students who all have been coming to the talks hear that because if you, I did a blog post um, called Free Speech Fundamentals Fame where I went through all the videos that the Milo's team had done talking to the kids who came to his talks and they were talking about why they liked him. And you realize they like, they don't, they're not worried about the jokes. They're not going out and being mean to anybody. They're just happy that he's giving them permission to live and to laugh and to, to enjoy life again in a, in a way that says, I can do this, right? He's very, he's very um, um, education affirming and skill affirming. So I, you know, I warm to that. Does that answer your question, John? Oh, it, it absolutely does. And, and I just wanted to say thanks, Rachel. And she's welcome down here at Dunbroom anytime she uh, is on the road. <laughs> You'll get me there one day. <laughs> All right. One day. Bye, guys. All right. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate it. So, okay, I want to unpack something here a little bit. <clears throat> and, the, and the title, I I, uh, I purposely didn't uh, pull the, you know, get the book. I will, but I didn't do it. I didn't want to do it before the interview because I wanted to be as ignorant uh, on the, what the meaning of this as the audience, not that the audience is ignorant. They're obviously very smart people. They tuned in today, didn't they? Hey, uh, so from judgment to passion, devotion to Christ and the Virgin Mary. Okay. That's a lot. That's a lot. So tell me, tell me wh what, first of all, what in the world drove you to write this book? <laughs> Mary, Mary drives me to do everything. Um, the core of the book is a study. I said, I worked on scripture primarily and, and have um, is a study of commentaries on the Song of Songs that were mm -hmm. written in in the 12th century that take in in the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon you have two characters the bride and the bridegroom the sponsa and sponsus and these 12th century commentaries take the bride as Mary and the bridegroom as Christ and and of course the puzzle is well how right what kind of relationship are they are they imagining between Christ and his mother if they give them the character of bride and bridegroom. Um, in the longer tradition of Song of Songs commentary, um, the, the characters are assigned as the soul and God or um, the church and Christ. Um, but in, in the Marian tradition, the Song of Songs is always used in her liturgy. So there was this puzzle for the commentators to figure out, well, what it, how can this text mean about her when we think it's about the soul or the church, and yet we sing it? And um, in, in, in the book, what I, I show is that these, these commentaries are, are some of our first sort of um, literature that's trying to imagine Mary and Christ from the inside. Um, the Song of Songs is a dialogue, and so you get a lot of first-person address between the characters. And that gave the commentators the, 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 the way to find their way into what Mary must have felt, right, and, and what Christ must have felt, because the, the, the characters in the song are, are talking about that. I actually posted a passage on my blog this past week when I was I was feeling quite strongly for Milo because I thought what happened to him last week was quite awful. Um, wanting to suffer with him, which I say I wear my my, my scholarship all the time. Um, there's a passage on my blog right now, Mother and Son, which is from um, 
one of those commentaries, and, and you can see in that passage how it's Mary imagining herself through this passage from the Song of Songs, saying, a bundle of myrrh between my breasts is my love, that she uses to say in William of Newborough's language, I, you know, I want to go to Calvary with you, right? And, and, and that is, in all of medieval literature, one of the most affective, emotional passages I know to, to imagine Mary's, Mary's co-suffering with, with Christ. Um, the, the book itself goes from the, the Carolingian period, the 8th or 9th century, when um, the, the um, Christian, uh, new Christians in Saxony just learning about the Eucharist, and, and they're trying to figure out how to talk about that. So there's the first chapter is on the real presence. It goes through in the second chapter, problems with the year 1000 and apocalyptic imagining there. Um, there's, there's chapters discussing different prayer practices, but it's all trying to give you this sort of narrative arc of how do you end up beginning with a, and I'm not sure, I, I, I might change my title now, I've learned more since I wrote the book, but um, going from a, a, a Christ that seems mainly triumphant, it's good, I learned stuff, right? My new book will correct some of this. Uh, going from a Christ that's, that's seemingly much more triumphant to a Christ that we see in the, in the Gothic, arc, Gothic sculpture that's typically much more wounded and, 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 and um, you know, bleeding and, and so forth. And my argument is to understand that we need to go through the liturgy and we need to go through their commentaries to get to the point where we really get inside. That's always my theme, getting inside. Get inside um, the medieval understanding of what Mary and Christ's relationship was. So your new book, you're you're going to go back because I'm going to do this with mine. I'm in the process of re not rewriting, but writing a second book that corrects a lot of things. Not corrects, but you know makes better a lot of things. Well, corrects some stuff, uh, makes makes better and corrects a lot of things from the first book, and then kind of taking it to the next step. But Mary and the art of prayer. Uh, prayer is it's it's for many people that uh, pink unicorn. You know, it, it's. It's so strange. It is an exercise well, of the imagination. That's exactly right. It, it, it really is. And so uh, a lot of people say, and I do uh, some conferences on prayer, and, and, and a lot of people just, you've probably figured this out by now. I don't, I don't typically talk like a uh, theologian or a preacher. Uh, that's a, kind of a rare thing uh, because, honestly, most preachers get on my nerves. I said I'll never go back to another pastor's conference that I'm not giving the keynote for. And that sounds very full of myself, but, but the, they get on my nerves with all their church words and their conferences. I'll take your word for it. Oh, oh, and the food is terrible. The food at those conferences is terrible. It's junk food. All of it's junk food. But anyway, so the point is, is the art of prayer. I was very interested to see those three words in the first part of your title of your upcoming book, the art of prayer, because well, it's it's a lot of people struggle with it. I remember I had an experience well, many that, years ago. It's, it's it's exactly what the book is about, right? That 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 prayer is an art, and we think of it as something that should be sort of spontaneous and and about emotions primarily. But it's it's an art of imagination as well. And mm -hmm. in, in the medieval tradition, you're 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 praying both with your mind and your heart, right? You're 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 mm -hmm. you're you're praying both with your in, your intellectus and your affectus, your understanding and your affect. And for me, that I'm so pleased that you're picking up on the title in that way, because that's exactly the core of the problem. What does it mean to pray when we are no longer skilled, and it is a skill too, like an art, right, ours, we are no longer skilled in this practice of the imagination. Mm -hmm. I can tell you more about uh, what that is, if you want. 
I want to hear more about that in a second. One of the things that I experienced okay. uh, over the past few days was uh, I saw a person be injured. Not not seriously injured, but injured, you know, injured. It was a large group of, not a large group, you know, okay group of people, uh, but they weren't focusing on any one particular thing. They weren't really focusing too much on each other. And this person, I happened to look and I saw this person just quietly with their eyes closed, praying, uh, not making a big deal out of it, just closing of the eyes and praying. Now, I can't close my eyes if I'm standing up because I'll fall over. I, I have a brain injury. Um, but it, it, it really interested me and it touched me because, you know, you don't see a lot of people doing that. Or what you'll see is, you know, hey, folks, especially in, you know, certain types of churches. Hey, folks, let's get together and pray for this young person. This young person is hurt. We're going to pray. Come on, y'all. Let's get together. Let's all of us get together now and pray. Instead, this mm. person did something I, I felt was much more and I'm, I'm, I'm a force multiplier guy, you know, from the military and executive protection world. And so I, I like, you know, the more the merrier. But, but in this, it struck me because I thought, now there is a quiet, humble prayer. And you knew in that moment, now I've known people that uh, I, I sincerely believe have a direct line to God. And they, when they, when they pray, uh, they, they are connected. You can tell that the art of prayer is is a um, it's a masterpiece, and and so I, I I've taught on it a lot, but the most powerful thing that happened to me as it related to prayer was this this elderly gentleman. He was he was in his late seventies, very late seventies, and and he came to this church. It was like um, uh, I don't know if it was a Southern Baptist church or not, but it was a fairly large church in the north. And uh, so church is different in the north than it is in the south. But but so he mm. comes there and he's going to do this uh, literally week long uh, conference on prayer. And, you know, he said that, you know, the first night there was, a I don't know, 270 people there. And he said, listen, uh, tomorrow night there's going to be fewer. The next night there'll be fewer. The next night we'll have under 50. Mm. And then the final night we'll have the biggest audience of all. You're going to fall off because prayer is hard. It's an there's yes. an art. To prayer, not in the words yeah. necessarily that you say, but the but the it's it's a fight. It's a fight for communication. It's a conversation. Um, I, I always used to say I've I've gotten to meet uh, some presidents and I've gotten to meet some very very famous people. I've had the pleasure of protecting extremely famous people and extremely uh, powerful people in the, in the world and in, mm. in the overall world of things. And many of the people that, you know, you, you, I'm sure you've heard this, you know, you don't want to meet certain people because you have such a high opinion of them. And, and in the executive protection world, we say, well, you know, you never want to protect this or that person because you say, well, you know, what if it will be crushed? And I remember uh, Tom Selleck and ironically two Toms, uh, Tom Cruise. I, I was very, very interested in protecting them because I thought, man, these are these seem like really decent people. And you know what? They were 100,000 times better as people oh, than I had I ever like imagined. <laughs> well, let me tell you, he's 72 I, I, years old. He can barely I'm walk now. Good in person too. <laughs> he's, he's one of the finest human beings I've ever met in my life. And I got to protect him a lot. I'm delighted and, to hear uh, but Tom, Tom Cruise, quite frankly, is, is one of the kindest, most thoughtful, yeah. uh, caring people I, I've ever met as well. It was an absolute pleasure to protect, but I'm going to say this. You say, well, what's that have to do with prayer? When the conversation with God 
in prayer is you suspend for me i suspend everything outside of me much like when i worship i do a lot of worship by myself i worship by myself i go and it's not intentional sometimes sometimes it just happens and then um i disappear right. from the world for a little while and uh it's powerful it's it's uh it brings very very intense not entirely uncontrollable emotion but very powerful emotion grief joy celebration uh extreme gratitude all of these things but prayer uh sometimes well i'll just say this 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 old gentleman you know he was exactly right it did exactly what he said and you know it, the attendance fell off at this prayer conference uh, by the end and of course the very last one the big capstone everybody wanted to come to and act like they had gone through everything and there was this manual yeah, that part, you had yeah. to keep up with oh yeah they didn't want to do it and my next guest you know he talks about andy stump he's a he's a retired navy seal and there's a saying in the teams everyone wants to be a frogman on friday and the fact mm -hmm. of the matter is, is is that applies to every example of your life well everyone wants to be because it's easy to be a you know Friday if Saturday Sunday off you're you're resting your body and your mind, um, but the fact of the matter is is when it comes to prayer, and and specifically and I love that you said this it's it's really powerful because a lot of people be afraid to say the art of prayer because that adds mm. some connotation to it, um, some professional training and I get where you were coming from with it. Well, this guy when he's preaching the final message and, and, and li literally. Little tiny guy, 70, 76, I think, when he did this. He and his wife are there. And, you know, you think that he's going to get up and kind of grease the skids and, and really help these people's egos and let them off, let them off easy. And he stands up, you know, he's, he gets introduced, and it's the last day, and, you know, the place is packed. You know, I, I don't know. There's probably 800 people there. Wow. And, he's, and he looks out in the crowd, and he said, most of you do not deserve to be in the company of the rest of the people who were able to summons the dedication and the discipline to attend first night through tonight. Most of you don't right. deserve that. And quite frankly, but for the grace of God, you wouldn't deserve to converse with God. You either, you either have mastered the art of prayer such that my involvement and my instruction here has been nothing but a reminder for you that you didn't need, or you are so, so far from the art of prayer, you're merely painting graffiti on the walls of your own prison. I will never forget that. Now, wow. he said that, and he stopped, and then he walked down among the crowd, and he said, many of the faces I remember seeing, I'm but an old man, but I remember seeing your faces on the first night. And one of the things that I said when I came here to do this conference was tell everyone to commit to being here each night. And if they cannot commit to being here each night, do not come to the first night. Because he said what would happen is the people come the first night and they say, well, is this interesting? Is this going to be easy? Because I, I want it easy. I, I don't want to have to do the hard thing. You know, I really don't want to have to do the hard thing. I just want to just want to do the easy thing. Where's mm -hmm. Is there a texting? What is the text number? For God, what, you know, can I just hit him up with some texts and, you know, or maybe an email? I don't know what he uses these days, but, but it's not that it's, it's sometimes it's anguishing and sometimes it's, it's, well, it's anguishing because it's an art in, in the sense that, I mean, on the one hand, it's, I, I think the, the, the particular art of prayer that I'm looking at in the book that I'm, I'm, I've, I've, I'm coming out with this year, 
um, is the the art of the hours of the Virgin, which is is the the the, the text that we're in books of hours. If, if anybody's seen mm-hmm. a, a medieval book, they've probably seen a book of hours. And it's many of my you know scholarly colleagues tend to insist that nobody ever read these books, which seems a little a bit of waste of time to make them. Um, I think they read the text, and I think my my book is trying to show you what they're doing with those those texts. So it's very it's. It's an expansion of From Judgment to Passion, because now we're going into the Psalms and the way in which Mary is, is also present in the Psalms. But to go to your, to your question about the, the sense of the art, so it's, you know, reading is a great art, right? It takes a lot of training to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, um, one of the things I think the Marian tradition shows me now is how bound up, not just devotion to Mary, but Christianity gener- more fully is with the problem of creativity, and, and the problem of, you know, you're, you were made in the image and likeness of a creator, going back to Tolkien, right, my intish level, right? Tolkien's whole sort of ethos is thinking about what it means to be made in the image and likeness of a creator and to participate in that creation through subcreation, which is art, right? Mm-hmm. It's this, this, our, our, our activity in, in, in crafting with words or with materials or with song or any, any of the, the, the ways in which we reflect back the beauty of the one in whose image and likeness were made. But in order to do that, you actually have to surrender to God, right? You have to surrender to the inspiration. You have to surrender to the discipline that's going to take, I like your graffiti image, right? It's like, if you really want to make a beautiful painting, you're going to have to train um, to be able to do that. If you want to write a beautiful piece of, 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 of literature, you have to practice and know your tools and, and be able to wield them properly. That going back to my Augustine image, right? You, you need to practice with your sword to be wielded mm-hmm. well, and and that kind of you know that kind of surrender. Um, back when I was starting my graduate work, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's book on flow was quite popular. And it's like oh you know flow, it's what you feel when you're in 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 an art, right? And and what people miss was it's not just feeling good, it's <laughs> it's having the skills to match the challenge that you are in the middle of. And of course it changes over your life, right? If you continue to grow in skill, the challenges will continue to get greater and you'll be, and you, you have to keep it. It also fits with my fencing metaphor, right? That you, you have to keep pushing yourself to that edge. And I, you know, I think prayer is similar. Um, another of my favorite passages is from Simone Weil, where she's talking about school, school, tra- school work as, as something for Christians to, to, to attend to. And it's, to, to to be able to do your geometry lesson, you have to give yourself utterly to the geometry, right? You can't be spending all your time figuring out that you're going to do this geometry so you'll look good or something like that. You actually have to surrender the material. She says that is a good that is a good discipline for practicing, in fact, surrendering to God in prayer. That you give your entire attention to something outside of you, so it's not me 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 anymore, right? You're having to undo all of that attention to yourself and 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 let yourself go into that conversation into that creativity into that craft and of course people resist it because we never want to give up our our sense of self we want, we cling to it and and um you know a great deal of monastic discipline is all about that that need to figure out to, to train yourself to be able to surrender and and mm-hmm. it's it's the the mo- it's the greatest exercise of strength right interestingly that you're able to to discipline yourself to that kind of willingness to let god work through you in my uh, coaching, and uh, I had a coaching and counseling practice, and and in that, I frequently uh, say to painters, paint what God tells you to paint, and to writers, mm-hmm. write what God tells you to write, and to teachers, teach what God tells you to teach. It seems that a lot of people 
are are deeply afraid of that. It's it's a very scary thing. Uh, it's that it's that going out where you can no longer sailing out to where you can no longer see the land. It's easy when you have a motorboat. As long as you have gas, you're good to go. But once the wind dies and you're you're far out there, uh, you're wondering, you know, will the wind blow again? And and will right. it blow the right way? And well, and, I can't and God see is the land. Telling you, God is usually telling you to do something that you're somewhat afraid of, right? It's like this mm-hmm. pushing you that little that and 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 also, I mean, I I I see this as a problem in in lots of different contexts that we're constantly trying to protect ourselves from from risk, right? Mm-hmm. So that sort of I don't want to do that because what if, right? And and yeah. um, well, you know, God is usually saying, well, if you don't do it. But, I mean, I, I've also experienced this in this last week. So my friends keep saying, why did you stand up in this way? Why did you do this? And I'm like, well, to say no was worse, right? Because it's mm-hmm. clear that, that, that this was, this, you know, the moment that I needed to write what I needed to write. And happily, I've been training so that I, you know, had all of the tools and hopefully the spiritual support to be able to do it. But that you can feel God sort of, I've, I've also come to this new understanding of grace. I, I, I used to think of it as a sort of feeling of comfort, which it may mm-hmm. be. But I think it's also that feeling of compulsion you have. When you, you're not sure you can do it, but you just know you have to, and mm-hmm. and and that that sense of if I if I resist this, you can feel that you're resisting something stronger than yourself, and you you might want to say no, and maybe if you mm-hmm. do, you'll think you're safe, but you're not, right? Because you've gone right. against the very thing that God most needed you in that moment to to attempt. That's powerful stuff. I love it. Well, you know, our time has gone as I knew it would. Uh, our time has gone very quickly. <laughs> And I'm wondering, I'd love to invite you to come on the show again, but what I'd like for you to do is I would love for you to come on the show with Dr. Stephen Turley. I think you would have a blast, and so would he. Uh, You think very similarly, but uniquely different. So thank you so much for joining us today on the Collision of Faith and Politics, Uh, and, and I'll definitely be in touch about being on again. It's just an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Sean. It's been great. Thank you. Take care. So, folks, that was fun. Um, I, I want to just real quick share this with you because our other guest is on the line. Um, Andy Stumpf, a, uh, a former Navy SEAL, retired Navy SEAL, and, and uh, just an extraordinary fellow. Logox, you've heard me talk about it. I'm telling you, they're a, they're a partner of ours. And I'm the self-reliant type. I'm really, really, um, that's what I like. One of the worst parts about becoming uh, so disabled was, you know, you, you have this sense of you're no longer you're no longer self-reliant, uh, but I grew up, you know, our, our home in the Northeast was heated with wood, nothing else. We had no other heat. And so if you didn't identify wood to uh, harvest and cut and split and stack, well, I'm sorry to tell you, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to be warm. You know, it's just a fact. And so I remember schlepping these huge logs and I was a little kid, you know, I'm a much bigger guy now, but when I was a kid, I was very skinny and very slight, but I was also kind of strong, you know, for a wiry little kid. And I'm talking little kid, you know, so you'd have to schlep these logs. And and I remember I wrapped rope around some of them and tried to pull them and, you know, and, and mud and everything gets on all over it. And then it dulls the saw and it's unsafe to cut on the ground, but my friends at thelogox.com, thelogox.com, they've come up with a thing. It's a three-in-one forestry tool uh, that is, it's just ridiculously, ridiculously smart. Um, and of course, the, the guy's an engineer. 
the, the family that's, that's, it's a family company. It's, it's literally three people and uh, they make everything right here. Everything is sourced here in America. Uh, everything is, it, it's all, it's an all American thing. And by the way, a veteran, uh, a veteran company as well. So, you know, I'm big into that. So the Logox three in one complete set, it comes with two accessories, convert the Logox hauler into a full cant hook. So you roll a larger log and then it has a timber jack. So you lift up the smaller diameter logs up off the ground and it helps protect your chainsaw from making contact with the ground. So, and, and one of the, the deals is, is, is this is, this is something for you. If you go to thelogox.com, T-H-E-L-O-G-O-X.com, or go to my website, uh, the blog, if you're on, if you're on my blog, today's blog post down at the bottom, uh, about the show, you'll have a, you'll you click right on it. It's super easy. It's going to, if you go and you look at this, you see the videos, you see all this stuff. It's very fascinating how they had it laid out and you say, ah, oh, that's for me. It's not a very expensive thing, by the way, at checkout. If you put in the Ninja pastor at checkout, you're going to get $25 off your purchase of the Logox three in one complete set. And trust me, you're going to be glad you did because the next time you're out working in the woods, it's going to be so much easier. I wish I had this when I was a kid. So anyway, go handle that. So our next guest, really, really fascinating guy. And I'll tell you, uh, several people contacted me uh, and said, you've got to talk to this guy. And I kept seeing his name and, and, and hearing his name and everybody keeps sending me these things. I'm like, oh, Lee Day, man. Um, and I have many friends that are, are SEALs and in the special warfare community in the, in the different services and many Gold Star family members who ironically uh, and sadly, of course, um, they're... They're, the seal was their son that was lost that gave their life um, and and he is friends of many of those it's it's such a small world it's really it's really kind of crazy but Andy Stumpf he's a retired United States Navy seal he he is uh, the current wingsuit now you guys know what that is you've seen these videos on YouTube if you go to my blog theninjapastor.com if you look on there you're going to see uh, there's a link to his videos. You go down and read on the blog post for today. You'll see it. Just click on that. Not right now. You, if you click on it now, you're not going to hear what he has to say. Sheesh. Anyway, you go on that, and uh, you'll see the entire process from from in the aircraft to uh, to the ground. You can watch it. It's it's absolutely fascinating. And this squirrel suit, you know, it's it's winged. It's a winged suit. And so uh, we'll talk about why he did this and why he does a lot of stuff. That he's a base jumper as well. But he, you know, like I said in the open, 17 years as a Navy SEAL um, and, uh, you know, the last part of his career with DevGrew. Um, look, you know, what, what these, these folks do is it's uncommon valor. It's, 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 it's different than you can imagine. And the fraternity uh, of, they have a saying, long live the brotherhood. Um, you know, the frater- it's, it's, it's indescribable. I remember when I, when I, uh, when I finished my Navy, uh, opportunity, I used to call it an obligation. I look at it now as an opportunity. When I finished that, I chased the whole rest of, of really my life. I was looking for that kind of fraternity, that kind of brotherhood again. And I never found it. I went into the police department, different police departments. and I never found it, you know, big, you know, famous police departments, never, never found it. Uh, but this guy, uh, Andy Stumpf, he's got a unique way of looking at things. And I, I think once you hear him, he doesn't think he has a, a hugely unique thing um, about him, but he does. He's a very special person. But uh, just to give you an idea of how he served, five Bronze Star medals, four with Valor, 
a purple heart and they don't just hand those out. The guy was hurt seriously for it. Um, and uh, Joint Service Commendation Medal, Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal with Valor, Army Commendation Medal, two combat action ribbons, and a presidential unit citation. Now, before I bring him on, I want to read something to you really quickly. This is something that Andy wrote. Uh, and, and like I say, I don't, you know, he's got a lot, he's got a lot to offer here. Um, everyone wants to be a frogman on Friday. He says, one of my favorite quotes from the teams, because it applies to everyone and every goal, to use SEAL training as an example, 80 to 85% don't see the third day of Hell Week, let alone the last day of training. It takes a lot of work to even show up for day one, but it doesn't take much to end it. All you have to say is, I quit. Ring the bell in the picture three times and it's over. There's paperwork later, but in essence, that is the end. All SEAL training is really about pushing people to their lowest point, and then watching the decisions that they make. When you're at your lowest point, tired, hungry, cold, do you give in and take the easy way out? During the most difficult portions of training, the instructors bring the bell with them to make it that much more enticing and easy to quit. It sits right there in plain sight, always ready for the next taker. I have noticed that most people focus on the illusion of the shiny object, not the reality of what it takes to achieve it. The amateur can only see the end state. The professional focuses on the fundamentals and incremental progress. If you think the bell doesn't exist in your life, your eyes are closed. It is everywhere. The only difference between the Bud's bell and everywhere else is that in Bud's, when you ring it, the outcome is instantaneous. Laziness, procrastination, selfishness, lack of discipline, you fill in the blank. All small rings of the bell. The bell is everywhere. And it is always calling you. Ring it enough times and you will find yourself looking back filled with regret. Everyone wants to be a frogman on Friday, but you'll never get there if you give up on Tuesday. I know the sound of the bell haunts many men. Don't let the decisions you make when things get difficult end up haunting you. Now, if, if Andy Stumpf if that was all he contributed to the world, that'd be enough, quite frankly. But he's done a lot more than that. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. So, okay, so just just so these folks know, uh, it's kind of rare that a United States Navy SEAL, now, first of all, you know, you and I went in the Navy at the same age, 17, at the age of 17. It was, it was uh, I, it, for me personally, the Navy was the greatest thing I ever did. I've always been chasing. I've done a lot of stuff since then. Nothing compares. Um, I absolutely loved being in the United States Navy. I love the friendships that I had. I love the people that I worked with. Uh, I, I just loved the mission. A lot of times sucked. It was just massive suck. And you just had to embrace the suck and just do it. But you, you were, you were with your guys, you were, you were with your buddies, you were with your teammates and you did what, uh, was required of you at that time. And you knew you could look to your left and look to your right. And, and, and those guys would be, they're right there. No matter what comes, no matter what happens, they're not backing down. They're right there. And so, you know, I know, obviously I wasn't a Navy SEAL, uh, but I do, I do have a sense of that fraternity that, that brings, with it, uh, just a great experience while it's happening. And then afterwards, there's, there's a little bit of a sense of emptiness. What do I do now? You know, I've done this. One of the hardest things in the entire world to do, you've done. 
and you've gone to the very highest levels of that. So you're to be commended for your for your 17 years of service. Uh, but you started at 17 years old. What in the world brought you to uh, say, you know, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to go into the hardest, the most challenging thing I can do, the most uncomfortable thing, quite frankly, the most dangerous thing I could ever do. I, I think I'll do that. 17 years old. You know, how, how does a 17 year old, how does 17 year old Andy come to that conclusion? This is what I'm going to do. Uh, man, I wish I had a good answer for you. Uh, and the answer that I do have, most people are surprised by. Uh, it, it was something that I knew I wanted to do since a very early age, since I was about 11 years old. And it was my father who initially uh, brought the SEALs up to me. He served alongside of them in Vietnam. He was not a SEAL, but he was peripheral to what they were doing. And it came up in casual conversation. And I, I have no vocabulary to describe why it locked me in the way that it did. I mean, it was a magnetizing force from that moment on. Uh, you know, the internet was not what it was when I was an early teenager, in my early teen years, it basically didn't exist. So I was at the library looking for books and anything that I could find on the subject. I was looking, uh, you know, for people that I could talk to that had any level of experience with SEALs or in the SEAL community. And it just, it got me. I don't, I think all boys to some degree grow up wanting to be soldiers. And I think that bug hits some of them harder than others. It is uncommon for people to hear, especially in the civilian world, that I knew that I wanted to do it from a very young age. But the SEAL teams uh, is a community full of people that have the same narrative. It's an extremely common story inside of the SEAL teams, which to me is what makes the teams unique. I mean, you, you brought it up kind of in the intro. It's people focus on the fancy gear that you get or the outfits or the helicopters, or the high speed stuff that we do, but that all terminates in a human being at the end of the day. And it's that community of, of individuals that can come together and work together. That is truly amazing. And the vast majority of them felt the same way. So it's, it's hard to describe how it bit me like that, but it just did. And I never, I never really looked back. I never even planned for a, a section, second option when I was, was growing up, which in hindsight was not necessarily smart but I didn't even prepare to try to apply to college. I just prepared for what I wanted to do. And I, and I got fortunate. I didn't get injured along the way throughout training and I made it through on my first try and just never looked back. Awesome. Uh, can you give folks just a, 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 well, you don't have to be as brief, you can be as brief or as lengthy as you want to be. Uh, any insight into the training process buds? You know, can you, I mean, there's regular people listening. We have a lot of SEALs listening. I'm not sure if Drago is listening and some, some of the other fellows, but, uh, you know, he obviously knows what it's like. But, um, you know, the, some of the folks listening, many of the folks listening have no clue. Would you mind sharing with them a little bit of what BUDS is like? First of all, what's BUDS stand for? Sure. Most people don't know that. Yep. Sure. Uh, you know, and Drago and I actually were second phase BUDS instructors at the same time. I know him pretty well. Uh, so awesome. BUDS stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. And people think of it as a school, and I try to correct them uh, when they have that, that thought process because you don't really learn anything at BUDS. The emphasis is truly on the B. It's very basic, uh, and it's designed to be a filter. It's the, mm -hmm. it's the initial, I call it the wide end of the funnel for the selection process mm -hmm. to become a SEAL. You are not a SEAL at the end of BUDS. That's another pretty common misconception. 
that uh, you graduate buds and you're all of a sudden a seal to truly become a seal. It's going to take you somewhere between 18 to 24 months, but it's mm-hmm. broken up into three phases. Uh, the first phase is largely physical in nature. There's a lot of physical tests. A lot of the evolutions that you do are just purely based on physicality. Hell week, uh, the very notorious uh, week of training occurs during that first phase. And the vast majority of those who are not going to make it are gone by the end of hell week. I'd say maybe only another three to 5% of people who are going to quit uh, are still in training beyond hell week. So from first phase, you go over to second phase, which is where Drago and I were an instructor, and we taught diving. We taught both open circuit, meaning that the bubbles escape when you exhale, and closed circuit, mm-hmm. meaning the bubbles do not escape, and you, you basically chemically scrub the oxygen or the carbon dioxide out of the oxygen. And we administered a diving test that had absolutely nothing to do with diving. And it was all about mm-hmm. stress underwater and whether or not you can control yourself in an environment where I get to control where you breathe. If you can make it to training to that test and successfully come out the other side of it, the, the statistics are in your favor to become a SEAL. You have a high 90th percentile chance of becoming a SEAL beyond that point. And um, then you go into third phase, which is, again, very basic introductions to weapons and tactics and a little bit of demolition. And all throughout that, obviously, there's a lot of physical training that occurs. There's a lot of tests that you have to complete. Uh, but that's, it's, it's unique because both officer and enlisted are standing shoulder to shoulder. It's one of the few military mm-hmm. schools that both officer and enlisted have to go through together. And I think that's a very important aspect to the camaraderie, to the brotherhood. It's that shared experience that everybody can go and fall back on, whether you're an East Coast SEAL or a West Coast SEAL. At the end of the day, I know the baseline template that you're built from, uh, and from that can come a lot of confidence. But that's, that's how the school is where the course is structured. Like I said, it's the wide end of the funnel. And as you get closer to the end, the funnel narrows. And then beyond that, you have another, you have to go through your jump training, both static line and free fall. You go through another training course where they get more advanced in everything that you learned in buds. And then at the end of that, you get your trident. Uh, and from there, go to your SEAL team as a fully qualified SEAL. It's a very mm. long process that pretty much, I mean, and it, people ask all the time, you know, do you think I could make it through buds? And the answer is that I have absolutely no idea. I would get asked by parents. I would be asked by young men if they thought I, if I thought that they would be able to make it. And you can't tell by looking at somebody. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. on day one looks like a professional athlete. If you had them there with just the, you know, standing there in a pair of shorts, physiologically, they may be a two or 3% difference, some height differences, but they all look the same. And yet 85% of them quit. So it's, it's all between the ears and you just cannot tell that by looking at somebody. Now, what is the uh, potential that someone, they get to the teams, they make it through the 24-month process, they get into the teams, uh, what percentage don't make it through to actually going into operation, you know, uh, to, to, you know to, to actually serving as a SEAL? Is there a drop-off at that point? I imagine if there is, it's pretty in- infinitesimal. There is a drop-off. Uh, you know, I call it the unicorn theory, uh, and there's a lot of misconceptions about SEALs, and one of them is that we are some type of unicorn on this perfect grass field where there are no mistakes and we have no problems, and the reality is is that the SEAL teams is a cross-section of society. We have mm-hmm. every 
you know, every problem that society has. We have people that uh, have drinking problems and substance abuse problems and spousal abuse problems. And when those things manifest themselves, uh, it can it can end your career. Now, I, I would mm-hmm. say we probably have a lower of those things happening, but probably per year at each SEAL team, I would say they, they go through the process of removing somebody's trident and removing them from being a SEAL because no training process is perfect. And sometimes it's purely just an attitude problem where the individual cannot get over themselves and focus on the mm-hmm. team in the way that we need them to. So it does mm-hmm. happen, but let's say less than less than 1%. It might even be a half of a half of a percent, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure there were, and thank you for sharing that with us, I'm sure there were times, really incredible times, uh, being on the teams, and then um, I'm sure that there were really low points. And I, I wonder if you'd be willing to share either of those. And you certainly don't have to, and I don't want you to feel any kind of pressure to, especially given, you know, you know what you do and, and what happens. But if you if you're up to it, if you'd be willing to do that, I'd sure think that our audience would would be interested in that. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's amazing how fast you can cycle between the highs and the lows. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the vast majority of the time we dominate the battlefield and things go in the manner that we want them to go because we work so well together and we're so well trained and equipped that we can force the battlefield to the result that we want it to, to go into. And if mm-hmm. I'm being honest, that feels amazing when that's happening. When, you know, people who, who want to become SEALs, they're doing it because they want to test themselves. They're not looking for a desk job. And as a SEAL, you test yourself on the battlefield. And, and when you first get into the SEAL teams, it's like this imaginary line in the sand of people who have been into combat and people who haven't. And you're trying to rush across that line as, as fast as possible. And when you're with a unit and you've been training together for 12, 16, 18 months and you're in the middle of a, of a deployment that could range anywhere between three months to 12 months on the long end, but you're operating well together, you're, you're seeing and feeling the impact of your operations on the battlefield and in the battle space, it feels amazing. And it can actually lull you in a little bit. You have to watch out for you know, overconfidence and you have to watch out for complacency because we're so successful, it can lull you a little bit into thinking that what worked yesterday will work tomorrow. And that's going to lead you to switch from that really high point to that really low point. Uh, for me personally, the lowest points uh, are burying my friends. Uh, I feel incredibly humbled to have been able to call the people that I served with uh, my friends. Uh, and there, I served with people who were so much better than me in every respect as far as being a human being. It it truly is just humbling to be able to say I was part of that community. And when you stand there at the funerals of people who gave more than anybody should ever be asked to give, and what really got me to the lowest points was seeing the impact on the family. Because you don't Mm -hmm. focus a whole lot on that when you're active and when you're operating. It's because you can't. You need to be a little bit myopic on what you're yeah, what you're doing and what your job is and getting the job done. You have to be myopic or you increase your odds of not coming home. But to see that impact, it's, uh, it rocks you to your core. You know, if it doesn't, mm-hmm. uh, you're probably a sociopath of some kind because it's, it's, it's a devastating thing to watch, uh, you know, a husband, a father, a son come home and, and watch the destruction that's left behind and people trying to pick up the pieces to a puzzle that's just been thrown into the wind. 
I, I have been um, with Gold Star families as they are dealing with the very initial uh, shock of the the yep. uh, the car coming up the driveway and and the very sharp uh, military men striding to their door with a very they stern face. One you, message to del- yeah, with only one message to deliver. And you know it, and, and the people know it before they even come to the door. They look out the window, and they see that car, yep. and and uh, I've known some who said, look, you know, I can't answer the door. I can't go answer the door. I said, you've got to answer the door. You've got to answer the door. And, um, you know, but but just take your time. The, you, you know, it, you're going you're gonna to get through this. Take your time, you know, you know, get yourself together, be able to walk. And in many cases, uh, in one particular case, a, um, a mother was, she wouldn't answer the door. And, and finally, uh, the, the guys at the door had um, an associate call and just say, hey, would, you know, we're, we're at the door. Would you, would you please come to the door? And it was yeah. the refusal, the denial of, if I don't go answer that door, my son. It's not real. It's not real yet. It's not real until I turn the, the, the key and so I turn the knob and then I open and I see that it only becomes real. And, and, and it's a very difficult thing. And you're right. It's uh, it's super, super challenging. Um, very powerful. And I can imagine that it, that it would be a really tough thing. That's kind of why I do what I do. I do a lot of work with gold star families and, and I'm, and like you say, I'm very privileged to, uh, be friends with lots of guys who who are on the teams and also with Delta and and, and other uh, special forces groups. But uh, the fact of the matter is is that part of it is is just crushing because you can't attenuate that energy. You can't attenuate it. It's 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 going to happen and it's going to hurt so bad. But then it, it, juxtaposed with that, also I've been with the family. Uh, or the moms, the dads, the brothers, the sisters in Arlington uh, after, you know, three years, their, their, uh, their seal has been gone. Their, their brother, cause to them, you know, yeah. Okay. There's, they're in the brotherhood of seals. They're all of this, but that's, that's their little brother. That's their, that's their youngest son. That's their, you know, that's their dad. I was actually uh, uh, with a guy who that's his dad, you know, and, and he wouldn't go. He, he just he couldn't go to Arlington. And uh, I said, well, how about if we go together? And so we went and, and it was a powerful experience. And it always is. I, I go very, very frequently there to remind me. Um, but, um, you know, I, I've been to the extortion 17 line, section 60. Um, and um, and I'll, I'll share this really briefly with you. And then I have some questions to ask you. Um, I remember standing there and I was with a mom. And then some other some other uh, families came. It was on a Memorial Day, and some other families came up and friends and uh, seals that that served with the you know the the guys that were killed and at some different point in time in their seal career. And I remember I was standing there talking to a Marine uh, major. Uh, he was killed. He was doing his ground rotation. A lot of people don't realize this, but uh, officers in the Marine Corps. Our pilots, they do a ground rotation, so they know what's going on on the ground as well. And uh, he actually volunteered to go out one particular night. I guess he wasn't up, but you know, his turn wasn't up to go out one night. And, and he said, no, 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 I'll, I'll go. And he went and, and, and tragically was, was killed in battle. And so uh, it's a really tough thing. He happens to have my same initials. 
uh, SMG, same exact initials, and right about the same age. And so uh, just, he's just he was just a little bit younger than me. And I remember I was standing there talking to his family and and uh, you know hugging and and crying with them. And and I remember uh, a, another stone further about uh, six or eight rows away, uh, you know, deeper in, into uh, Arlington caught my eye and it was a kid I taught many, many, many years ago in Sunday school. I, I almost collapsed. I literally, I'm there, you know, being strong for them. I literally almost collapsed. I had no idea. I hadn't seen the kid in many, many years, but I knew he went into the military, but it, you know, I live many States away. I, I didn't hear anything about him being killed in action. And, and uh, you know, we always assume, well, everything turned out all right. He didn't hear anything. And I remember that hit me and, and that kid was, that kid was a, just a Sunday school student. I caught him and I taught him in uh, sport, I coached him in sports. So I, you know, I, I, I empathize with your, with your feeling, although I certainly can't make it equal, but I can say that, that, that is a, that's, that's just a, a hundred pounds of suck. And um, so I'm sorry that you've had to experience that, to but describe. I'm willing. Yeah. It's, it it's is. hard to describe unless you've experienced it yourself. And once you have, uh, I mean, it just, it makes you look at things differently. Yeah, it really is. It really, really is. It's, it's a weird thing. I've experienced it in, uh, what I did after the military. And, um, and I can tell you it, it really, it's, it, it really sucks. You like to focus, you like to focus on lots of other stuff than that. So you wrote this blog post and I, I want you to know someone I, I really care about, uh, Karen and Billy Vaughn, um, their son, Aaron, uh, was killed in extortion 17. She sent this out and, and people kept saying to me, you've got to read this blog. Dr. Sean, you've got to read this blog. This guy gets it. He, he really gets it. He puts it in the right way. A debt that cannot be repaid. Um, and by the way, you guys uh, can follow Andy on Instagram at Andy Stump. Now it's S-T-U-M-P-F-212. So Correct. get that right. Um, and so really fascinating stuff. He does some amazing things with his life. Um, I, I love your first line in a country that most would struggle to find on a map in a compound that few possess the courage to enter men from my previous light, life took the fight to our enemy in that compound. They found men that pray five times a day for your destruction. These men don't know me. They don't know you and they don't know America. They don't understand our compassion, our freedoms, and our tolerance. I know it may, it may seem as if those things are currently missing, but they remain, and I know they will return. Our capacity for them is boundless, and it is only dwarfed by their hatred for you. They don't care about your religious beliefs. They don't care about your political opinions. They don't care if you sit on the left or the right, liberal or conservative, pacifist or warrior. They don't care how much you believe in diversity, equality, or freedom of speech. Now, I travel all over the country speaking on Islam. I'm an um, internationally recognized expert on Islam. And um, trying to get this through the heads of people that sit there. Now, I'm very rarely, as you might have discerned, very rarely ever invited to liberal uh, organizations, although I've been, I've spoken at many um, public universities, which, you know, always shocks me when that, when that happens. Mm -hmm. But I always know where the exit point is because, you know, I'm always sure some bad stuff's going to happen. But the point of it is, is, and, and I try to drive this home and, and I know that you've quoted this before and it's a fact, but you know, you go to a lot of places in, um, in Afghanistan and you, and you say, you know, Hey, is, uh, 
you know, is Bin Laden dead? Is Bin Laden here? Is Bin Laden whatever? Osama Bin Laden. They'll look at you and say, who? They don't know who he is. They're not, you know, that they're so far removed from this crazy chatter of pacifists and, you know, pacifists think you can, you can talk to people. Just talk to them. Just talk to them. What the problem is, is we just don't talk to them enough. If we just talk more, they don't care about that. They don't care if you're conservative or liberal, just like you said, uh, they don't care. They're going to kill you. They pray five times a day to get the opportunity to kill an infidel. That's simple. It's just that simple. Yeah. And, and another thing that I think people often get caught in a trap of is thinking that how we conduct ourselves somehow can control or will right. affect the behavior of those people. And it's, it's not true. And I don't blame people for thinking that. And I don't blame people for being confused about why others want to kill them because they've never looked into the whites of one of those people's eyes and seen right. that pure evil does exist. And it doesn't matter if I was Gandhi or Genghis Khan, the individual is going to kill me for what they believe, not what my actions are or could be or what my beliefs are or could be. They're just mm -hmm. the access to what I stand for. It's uh, And again, it's tough to articulate that to people and explain it to them and actually get them to listen if they don't have the requisite experience to understand it. But it's, it's mm -hmm. a complete misnomer to think that our actions and our behavior is going to stop the problem that we are currently facing because it will not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to bring uh, overwhelming kinetic force or very strategic um, laser-focused force to end that person, that human being. You have to do it or they're going to end you. And I know a lot of people say, I was giving a speech one time and I, and I brought that up. And I said, you know, because I, I try to always do Q&A. I always like Q&A, see how people are thinking. And, and, and this was a particularly conservative organization that I was speaking to. And it was a pretty large crowd, you know, just under 3,000. So you figure you're going to get some kind of weird questions here and there. And, and, uh, but, but one person in particular said, you know, somehow or another, you, you are trying to justify killing another human being. Well, if you weren't there in their face, they wouldn't be killing you. So it's because you've entered their home, you've entered their, you've entered their, their community, their, their village, you've, you've entered their country. You've entered their worldview. They didn't ask you to come there. You did. And so now they're in your face. And, and I just had to look at this young lady and say, and she, of course, she was, I said, what year of college are you in? And, you know, she was like, how do you know I'm in college? I said, trust me, that's not that hard to tell. Um, and uh, she said, well, I'm a sophomore. I said, okay. And then she said, not that that means anything. And I said, well, all right, whatever. It means a lot more than you think. And, and I explained to her, I said, you know, let me ask you, uh, cause this was, this was speaking about Islam. And, and I said, let me ask you something. So let's say you could fix everything. Of course I asked her her name. I won't divulge it on the radio, but I asked her name and, and she told me, and it was, you know, we'll just call her flower. And so flower, I said, flower, so you're, you're enlightened. You're, you know, you've been in college now you're a sophomore. So that's a lot of time. Wow. You're really enlightened. It's smart, smart girl. And so now you're going to tell me you're going to go over to Afghanistan or Iraq or Yemen. And you're going to tell me that you're going to go in and your heart is going to shine forth. And you're just going to, you're just going to shine the light and love of your openness. And you're just going to be free and, and just 
share with them you. I said, you know, is, is that what you think? She goes, oh, yeah, I do think that. And I don't think it. I know it. I said, how do you know? Have you done it? Can I look at your passport book? Because I can look at mine and see 54 stamps. But how many do you have? And, um, and she's well, no, I, I mean, I've never been there. But still, I know Muslim people. I have Muslim friends. It's where? Here at college? Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and I said, you know, they would, they would rape you first. Not just one, by the way, they would multiple rapes and then they would torture you as if being raped is not enough torture. Then they torture you and then they would kill you. They'd probably bury you up to your shoulders, throw rocks at your head until you are dead. And that is not a fun way to die. I'm just saying. And your and family just, can watch it on YouTube. Yeah, they can watch it on YouTube now with great production value, multiple camera angles, music, slow motion, high def, you know, come on. So I'm, I'm curious, and, and, and obviously I'm asking you this for a reason, because you, you, you've been out in, in, the, in the theater, you, you, you've had it come at you, you've brought the heat to them, they brought the heat to you, um, you've been deeply immersed in this. How do you explain, or what is your suggestion, what, what are your suggestions perhaps, to explain to people who at first blush or maybe 10th blush, they just don't get it. They think we can talk to them, they think we can somehow share our light and our love and, and be, cause I get this a lot, you know, I'm obviously called the yeah. ninja pastor and I earned that name. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is I get people say, well, you know, you're, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. You're supposed to pray, but I'm not asking you to give a theological dissertation here, but what do you say to those people? You, and I'm not saying you in general, I'm saying Andy Stumpf, 17 years as Navy SEAL. What do you say to those people? Or do you just yeah, laugh and walk success. away? No, I mean, I try not to. A lot of the times I'll avoid the conversation because most people are so entrenched in their beliefs that they're not interested right. in hearing a counterpoint. Right. Uh, but the only success I've had explaining to people the hatred that others have for us is by talking about love uh, and children specifically. And if you're not a child, you're a child of somebody's parents. And, you know, I have three kids. And I love them unconditionally. The amount that I love them transcends my vocabulary. And there is no amount of education or reasoning or talking to me that could get me to not love my children. And if you can understand that kind of love, then you can understand that on the other side of that coin is somebody who hates you and what you stand for, regardless of what it is. If you're a pacifist, there are people that will see that as weakness. If, they're a war if you're a warrior, there's people that are going to see that as a, an affront to who they are, and they're going to see you as a threat. But regardless of who you are, there is another side of that coin that hates you at the same level, if not more, that you love your own children. And just like there's no way to educate me out of loving my kids, for the vast majority of people that have flipped that far into extremism, education will not change their mind. That point in their mm -hmm. life has already passed. And now it is a belief and books aren't going to stop that. And mm -hmm. if you believe in your way of life, the only thing that you can do to prevent that other person or that other group or that other belief from having impact on your way of life is to do something about it. And when it comes to the people that I encountered overseas, it's a kinetic solution. I mean, we, mm -hmm. we do the best that we can to win the hearts and minds, but when you encounter people who are sleeping with body armor on, and their mm -hmm. weapons across their chest, the time for talking is over. And mm -hmm. some people will understand that and other people will not. 
And the reality is, is that the people who don't understand it, it's because they've never experienced it firsthand. If you've ever seen mm-hmm. firsthand a street corner that is literally red from blood, from people getting their head mm-hmm. cut off, you will never again question the amount of evil that certain people could bring to your front doorstep. And you'll never again question what is needed to keep them off of your doorstep. But it requires, mm-hmm. unfortunately, a little bit of exposure because otherwise it's just it's all hypothetical and it's all la la land, which is why I said I mm-hmm. a lot of the times I walk away and try not to explain it because my experiences are relatively unique. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I don't feel like I don't feel like arguing my point. I feel how I feel. And if somebody wants to be a snowflake and think that the world is run on rainbows and gumdrops, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. But at some point mm-hmm. in life, they're going to have a very rude awakening. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I've extended this. You know, I uh, I've recently been giving speeches on uh, solving, and I and I do air quotes, the goofy air quotes, not the not the sincere ones, uh, because I don't think it'd be done. I don't think solving is the right word, but I mean to deal with the the um, the crime problem in the United States of America, and specifically, ironically, our last guest, a phenomenal guest, very brilliant lady, uh, comes from. Uh, University of Chicago. And in Chicago, of course, as you well know, you know, they're dealing with or not dealing with a very serious murder problem. Uh, but the murder yeah. problem is just the symptom. It's it's the symptom of a lot of things. And the, and the first thing a lot of people will do is say, hey, you know, the reason they're doing this is because we failed them in schools. Who's the we, by the way? I don't know who the we is. I know I daggone sure didn't fail anybody in school. We gave them a free opportunity. We fed them breakfast, lunch, and in many cases, an afternoon snack uh, before they got sent home, we transport them free there. We give them an opportunity. We give them books. We give them all these things. And, and yet they still opt to choose to kill one another and to kill others in innocence. And, uh, and I, I used to say very frequently that, uh, I don't mind when they're killing themselves. It makes it easier for me. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is they indiscriminately kill. They don't care when you see a, uh, a stray bullet. I always love that term. A stray bullet went through a window and killed a four-year-old child, an innocent four-year-old child on the street because of gang violence, gun violence. They very frequently like to call it gun violence because they're anti-gun. And uh, so that advance, advances their cause. But this four-year-old, it's, it's, it's absolutely a tragedy. But that bullet would have found whoever was sitting in that chair or playing on that floor or walking down the steps or sitting on the stoop, whoever, it doesn't care. And, and, and in fairness, to people's you know snowflake sensibilities neither does the person that pulled that trigger he didn't care he doesn't care you're not gonna break his heart oh you know he killed a little kid yeah that's that is terrible it's it's you know in one sense if he was killing another gang member that would have been better but you know it's gonna happen there's no emotion uh, that i have of of terrible sympathy it's you've got to deal with the situation as it is and there's no amount of well you know grew up in a trailer or they, you know, whatever the, whatever the, the, the excuse de jour is. The fact of the matter is, is, is it's industry. They don't care. They're, they're indiscriminate. So I appreciate your insight on that. Um, and, and your, the story of the child is, I think is, is fascinating. It's just really, really fascinating. I like how you put that. It's a, it's a good, good way to flip it on them. Uh, so you're, you're a member of, you're doing lots of things and we'll, we'll get to all that. We don't have much time left because time flies. You're doing a lot of things, but you're on this new hit show. And I always have to laugh because I was <laughs> one of the, I was always one of these guys. I, it's one of the things I did at executive protection team. And in my downtime is, uh, we would very confident, confidentially, very discreetly hunt people down. 
and um, this show Hunted is is just a raging success. So congratulations on that. Um, what exactly do you do on this show? You guys know that's a CBS show. Uh, it's on every week, and it's it's fascinating. You get these regular people who think, you know, hey, I can get away. I can stay. I can stay uh, uncaptured over the course of 30 days. And, and so they do, you know, they have all these things. First thing they do is grab their phone and call their friends and gee, I'd like a pizza. And, uh, you know, I want to sleep in a clean bed, you know, all of these different things, all of which of course we use to, to catch people. So what do you do on this show? This, this hit hit show hunted. I mean, I would say my main job is just to try to look like I'm busy because I didn't really have a job. <laughs> I mean, so the show, I mean, the premise of the show for people who haven't seen it is it's basically 90% hide and seek and 10% freeze tag for adults. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. a contest that they obviously uh, applied for and they picked nine teams of two, not necessarily related uh, by blood, but they had some relation to each other. And the contest was if they could evade for 28 days, they would get a prize of $250,000 per team. And then they assembled nine teams of two investigators or hunters to go and look for them. And then a command staff uh, that was not located with the hunters to kind of aggregate all the information with the Intel specialists and analysts, push that out to the hunters and kind of just go through not really the targeting cycle or the Intel cycle in the military, but it, it's an investigation. And the reason I say my job was to look busy is because the people in the field were hunting. They were doing the investigations. They were doing the, uh, interviews and everything that they would actually do for real. The people, uh, the Intel specialists were aggregating all of the open source information, going through social medias, doing the link diagrams, doing their job for real. Uh, and I didn't really have anything to do. So I was the link in between the Intel people and the hunters in the field. So I would, you know, try to give my tactical input when I was asked as far as, you know, maybe, uh, a different way to view either approaching a structure or just, you know, try to give my perspective because I never was an investigator, how I got that, that role or job, if you will, is completely beyond me. Uh, and I accepted it because my litmus test for doing things in life is whether or not it sounds like a good story at the end of the day. And that sounded mm -hmm. like a good story. So yeah, it's, uh, I just tried to provide, you know, facilitation and not micromanage. Uh, but the show, yeah, it's doing well. The season premiere, or not premiere, the season finale is actually tonight on uh, CBS. And whether or not they do a, another round of the show is yet to be determined. But yeah, CBS seems to be happy and the numbers seem to be doing well. And it, it certainly is an interesting premise given the technological age that which we live in and how intimately tied people are to social media and things with a battery. Yeah, it's 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 really funny uh, because my family, you know, they hate to watch certain movies with me because obviously, you know, I see all the stuff that Hollywood is is not a firearms instructor at all. But people watch those things. They see these shows and they, you know, oh, that's so cool. And I look at it and I say, well, the guy slides locked back. He's clearly not shooting anybody. I don't know where the bang is coming from. And then, of course, you, you know, you yeah. see them, you see the assassin screw on the silencer. And you hear, Poof. that's all you hear is, Poof. well, it, it doesn't make that sound. It's, it's, it's louder than that. And, uh, you know, it, it's just funny to me. I look at those things and I just crack up, but this particular show, you know, I'll say, okay, these people are not going to make it. There's no chance in the world. They're going to be caught, caught very quickly. They love comfort too much. They can't, can't deprive themselves. You know, the discipline is just not there. I'm sorry to tell you the, uh, is, is much easier for them to go, you know, 
I like being lazy. I like to procrastinate. I like, I like hot coffee. You know, it's just funny. It's just really, really funny to me. Uh, so I watch and I dissect this and I say, you know, come on. These guys are going first. They'll be the next to get caught. These people won't last a week. These people won't last three days. But I do, I'm not going to say who I think won the show, but it's not who most people I think would think. So uh, I think it's just funny to me. It's just funny to me. So some folks want to know uh, regarding the 18-mile uh, cross-country <laughs> trip in a wingsuit. At, at yep. what altitude? And I know you jumped at, I think, 37. Uh, and 36, you five. deployed 36,000. So you had a problem. You, you did not have an altimeter. Am I hearing correctly? Uh, I didn't have, there's no way to look at one that's on your wrist because your wrist is enclosed in the suit. And normally when I do wingsuit jumping, uh, there's a place on my harness, the actual harness that contains the parachute where right. you can slide an, an altimeter in. And it sits uh, kind of just underneath your left shoulder. So you just have to tuck your head down and look at it. Well, when mm -hmm. I did that in the practice jumps, uh, occasionally the hose from the oxygen mask would wrap around it's that. Wrapped up. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that there was more risk in having the visual altimeter. So what I did is I had uh, dual audible altimeters inside of my helmet, one on each side. And I had them set for a variety of altitudes. Uh, and they actually, uh, mal one of them malfunctioned. And when I came to make the decision to pull, it was after I should have heard the audible warning. Uh, and just because I, I had enough time jumping and I had enough time in the wingsuit to realize that I probably was at a, a good altitude to deploy the parachute, I did so. Uh, and I just got back from a base jumping trip. So, I, I mean, my eye was relatively calibrated to, to determine distance off of the ground. So, yeah, I had to make that last call on my own. But, you know, people... Uh, think not having the visual altimeter was a bigger deal than it was. Uh, I had six or seven audible warnings on the way down to let me know where I was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, that leads to the next question, which is at what altitude did you, uh, you know, deploy your shoot? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you'd want to pop that sucker at about 1500, 2000 feet. You have to, by the United States Parachute Association regulations, deploy it at 2,000 feet. So that will be my answer. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I like it. Hey, you yeah. always got to be, you always got to be, uh, you know, it, a bunch, there's a bunch of guys that listen to the show that are uh, former military and retired military. And uh, one guy in particular, my friend Craig from upstate New York, my last poll was at 1350. Not good. And uh, what's funny, though, is a lot of people, uh, the the static line, you know, you mentioned static line and, and, and free fall. Static line is just feet knees face, feet knees face. You, you go out the door. Like jumping off a, yeah, like a 10-foot wall. I tell people to go find an asphalt or concrete parking lot in a 10-foot wall and jump off of it. Yeah, just jump and then slam into the ground and roll around a little bit before you, you know, hop and pop. I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, it's funny, the guys that try to pretty that landing, you know, that's why they say feet in his face, you know, they try to pretty that landing, you end up with a femur through your hip. You know, it's just, people just don't realize what uh, these guys go through. In order to in order to achieve even the first few steps of it, so we only have five minutes left, and I hate that because I have about nine million questions for you. But 
So you have a family, and I, I don't want you to talk too much about your family because you know, obviously, DevGrew and and uh, yep. and all that. And I, I I don't I I was so angry with the vice president when he outed DevGrew and you know where they live, and I've been in that community many many times, and I I I was just I was literally I can't remember who was around me, but I literally screamed treason. You've sold out. It you was know, very bizarre. It was it was bizarre. Very bizarre to use a very to use a generous term, but yes. Yeah, very generous. Very, very generous. And so, uh, you know, uh, that frustrates me. So I don't, I don't, I always avoid that in every, anytime I'm speaking, uh, you know, to a, a closed audience or a, a radio audience. But the fact of the matter is, is, is um, you've gone through a lot to get to all this stuff. What do you think? Let me just say this. We're down to four minutes. Crap, time flies. What do you, your goal is to support the, because you didn't just do this for, hey, you know what I think I would do, which by the way, I do crazy things because I, I just, I like to push myself. Um, so even if there weren't money or a big cause, I'd probably still do it. But in your case, you didn't do this big jump for nothing. You, you did it for the Navy SEAL Foundation. This is, folks, if you think that people, Navy SEALs families are going to be taking care of the rest of their life because they're, you know, because I know you, you, you got a Purple Heart and, and uh, you were awarded the Purple Heart because you, I think you were shot or, or hit by something. And, and uh, the, the point of the matter is, is, you know, all your bills aren't being paid by the American taxpayer. People have this very huge mistake. And on my website, the, the ninjapastor.com, I have links to all this stuff. But the Navy SEAL Foundation, uh, real quick, what do they do? I mean, they exist to be there from everything from initial knock and notification through legacy support, educational programs. I mean, they're, uh, they're a buffer between, you know, the realities and the difficulties of life post loss. Uh, and they, and they try to help keep families together. I mean, uh, their website is amazing. NavySealFoundation.org. It explains everything they do. I mean, the breadth and depth of their programs are more than I could explain in the short time that we have left, but and the reason I chose to work with them is because I look at my own family and I would want to have an organization like that there to help them yeah. in case something were to ever happen to me. I mean, my overall overarching goal would, of course, to be to continue to be able to go overseas and do it myself. But I can't do that mm -hmm. anymore. I mean, my time has just passed. Uh, mm -hmm. But there will always be people who are. And the second best endeavor in my mind is to support those families, which are in turn supporting the guys. And if they feel supported and they know that there's a backstop in case something happens, they can be even more effective against our enemy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so how can they contribute? You're trying to raise a million dollars for the Navy SEAL Foundation through a GoFundMe page. Yeah. How, how do they go do that? What do they do? Well, first off, raising money sucks. I've determined that I'm not any good at it and it's not any fun. Uh, you can go to Facebook and put in Andy Stump, Man on a Mission. That'll lead you to the uh, the GoFundMe page right there. Or, you know, just go to the SEAL Foundation and donate directly. I could care less if it comes through my GoFundMe. I just want people who need the money to do awesome things with it to have it. Uh, you know, skip a cup of coffee for a day and donate three bucks. You'd be amazed how far it'll go. Yeah, it is something. Well, thank you so much for your service to this country. I know that uh, service people, I was a Navy guy, and, you know, people see you and, and they say thank you for your service. And it's kindness that they do, but you don't really know what to say to that. But but sincerely, thank you for doing what you've done and, and giving what you've given. And thank you for continuing to fight for uh, Navy SEAL families and um, bringing the awareness to that. And uh, all I can say is it's been a lot of fun. I wish we had more time. But we don't, and that's just a reality I have to face. 
uh, look forward to talking to you again, uh, both on the show and individually. So listen, all the best to you, all the best Sounds to your great. family. And if, if I can ever help you or what you're doing. Sounds great. I appreciate it. And uh, uh, thank you for having me. Let's talk again soon. No worries. Got to pop smoke. So there you have it, folks. Big fun. Big fun. Serious stuff. Remember to share this show. Don't don't let it sit in your box. Don't let the link sink in your send it out. Send it to lots and lots of people. God bless you. Join us next time for the collision of faith and politics. And please follow this show at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash the ninja pastor. And follow Dr. Sean on Twitter at The Ninja Pastor and on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash God in Country Radio and at www.drseangreener.com. In the meantime, Dr. Sean will be fighting for you and for this great country. Thank you for joining in this fight. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.